In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We are gluttons for comfort. Ooh. Okay, so we we did hit a common ground here. (laughs) This is in, of course, big ways. We like to have a secure vision of what life is going to be or what tomorrow is going to look like. Uh, But this is in little ways, too. And I think it's in ways that sneak up on us. We are, as a nation, a buying nation. We call it consumerism. And what we get caught in is this trap of, look, there's this existential sense of unease in all humans, including Christians. You might know the answer to your unease, but you don't always live and press into the answer of your unease. So there's an author who describes this as, oh, I don't remember what it's called anymore, but like the fudge syndrome, this fudge syndrome. Um, And I relate more if you put it into the ice cream syndrome. Um, you're having a bad day or there's an unease or you don't feel good about something but you know what does make you feel good? Ice cream sure does and you might have it might be just a a three hour binge of whatever's on TV you know what you're watching but it's just you know we have our ways of there's something not right and unsettled so we find ways to find that comfort And it's usually in the way of consuming, whether it be food or buying something. New shoes will make me just feel better about life. Um, A new car, maybe a little more expensive, whatever. Uh, we, We find these ways to make ourselves feel better. But what ends up happening is that thing doesn't actually, for a moment, it's like, oh, that was great. And then we feel disgusted with ourselves because we didn't actually solve anything. And then we're like, oh, now I got to pay for this, or now I got to deal with these calories, or now I, I'm like so mad at myself that I lost self control, and and so then you're like feeling bad again, and so what do you do? Well, you see that Ben and Jerry's logo, and you're like, that'll make me feel good, and now you're on this loop, or or it was shoes, but now it's I I need a jacket that goes with those shoes, or I need better insurance for my car. We get in these loops of trying to consume and fix our unease. And this is what I mean by we are gluttons for comfort. We don't like sitting with the tension of the uncomfortable. So what Jesus tells us to do is to mourn. Okay, wait, Jesus, perhaps you didn't hear us correctly. We're looking for comfort. Yeah, I know. I want you to mourn. Blessed, this is verse 4 now, blessed are those who mourn. There it is. Because what we're looking for, the comfort we need, is found in the morning. Remember the, this sounds crazy, right? We're, we want comfort and so we see what the world tells us. It's an easy message. We buy it quickly because it's easy. We want comfort and we look to Jesus and he says, mourn. Now, sometimes we actually treat Jesus kind of like the ice cream syndrome, like he's going to make us feel better and it's going to do it better than ice cream. But we kind of put him in that cabinet and it's like, I don't feel good about myself. So Jesus, um, but Jesus is more than that. 
And because Jesus wants to actually fix us. He doesn't want to give us a band-aid or a little pill that says this 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 theological Tylenol is going to get you through your backache for the next day. Come back to me for the next one when it wears off. Um, we often treat Christ like this, but he actually wants to heal and fix what's broken. And so he invites us to mourn. We want comfort, but he says comfort is not the first thing to seek. The first thing to seek is to be healed. And so he gives us mourning as the method. Now, before we want to tune out Jesus's words and say there's easier ways and I'm not sure I like this, um, remember that he says blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. So we, it's, it's worth the review that the word blessed is, there's two Greek words for bless. One is eulogy. And a eulogy is when I bless God. We just blessed God together for his word, for his provision, for our salvation. That's a eulogy. We are giving him blessing and praise. He gives us grace in his Holy Spirit and salvation and communion. This is his eulogy to us. Right, So the, the uh, exchange of eulogy, of blessing, is part of the Christian breathing. But that's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say eulogized are the those who mourn. He says makarius. It's a different Greek word. And makar- So eulogy is a verb. You, you eulogize, but you don't makarisize. That just sounds awkward anyways. Makarius is an adjective that describes a state. And so it can be translated, happy are those who mourn. Sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? Um, But happy itself comes with its own baggage and culture. Like everyone's trying to be happy, you know, do some pop song. uh, But it can mean, um, some people say it can mean congratulations because you found something good. So I like to distill it as it's the good life. That's, that's maybe the way our culture would talk about it. The good life. It's, it's, it's a thriving life. It's a flourishing life. It's where you're doing well and you're just, you're just full of this, this, this fulfillment. It's, it's like the Garden of Eden with its blossoming and there's no corruption. There's no sin and fall. It's like Psalm 1, that tree planted by the rivers and its leaf never withers and it's got its fruits in all seasons. Uh, by the way, Psalm 1 says, Macarius are those who do not walk with the sinner, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they grow like that tree. That's the vision, the image of Macarius. It is literally Edenic thriving. It's what you and I are meant to be if sin didn't corrupt our current present condition. So Jesus is inviting us into the world and the life we've always wanted. But the thing he's showing us is that we think we want this, but that's actually a cheap low shelf cookie. And he's got the pie up on the high shelf and he wants us to go up to greater and bigger things. Now, I understand some of us like cookies better than pies. So just forget that part, though. Um, Macarius are the ones who mourn. So to recap, you aren't blessed because you mourn. It's not, I am going to mourn, and now God will pour out blessing. That's eulogy. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you mourn, you have entered the blessed life. So, blessed looks like someone mourning. 
really? Because I think of funerals and memorials. I think of breakups. I think of people dying, pets getting lost, stubbing your toe on the door. That doesn't sound blessed. Well, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we want comfort. Jesus says, I know. There's a step here, though. So you don't just want Tylenol every time you have an ache. You want that ache to go away. So I'm asking you to mourn. That is how you get comfort. That's how you enter the blessed life. So to mourn is what the doctor's saying is our healing process. It's our healing process. Here's how, now I, I looked up a ton of old dead Christians because they're the most reliable. Because they, they, aren't, they aren't succumbing to the same biases that I succumb to, right? So I find um, it important to have a balance of Christian voices in your life. Um, a lot of the old dead guys said that mourning brings healing to the soul. Now, we're not talking about um, mourning because you had a breakup. Mourning because you're going through a divorce or you're, you're, you lost your car or your job or something. Above, the Angels lost to the Dodgers two games in a row. Right? Like, we're not talking about that kind of mourning. We're talking about a specific mourning, which is uh, traditionally limited to mourning your sins. So when we, you have to remember that these, these beatitudes are, you might remember last week I was on the ladder. And um, the beatitudes are like steps on a ladder. They're leading us upward into union with Christ. And so the first one, poverty of spirit is humility. When I come to this place of humility, then I see who I am and who he is, and I mourn the, the severe gap between God and myself. That's what he's talking about by mourning. And when we see who we really are, and we allow our hearts to be broken and the tears to be shed, that kind of mourning, all the old dead people said, cleanses the soul like nothing else. So we're not talking about self-help books that say, here's how to fix yourself with these little tools and tips and tricks. Jesus is saying, this is all you need. You need to know who you are and you need to weep that, wail that, mourn that. That's what the word mourn in the Greek means. It means to weep, to moan, to wail. We need to be basically looking at ourselves and giving a funeral for ourselves. Like that Brandon is dead and I want to rise from these ashes. I want to pour out in tears this old dead self, the sinful self. So here's one example. I picked him because one, uh, I love a lot of the things he says, and he said it the best of them all. And two, it's the most memorable and gripping. And three, you're familiar with his name because we've said him at least a lot during the Passions series we did like a whole year ago. Uh, his name is Evagrius the Solitary, and he discipled our friend Macarius the Great. So there's a connection for us. Macarius is also the Lord blessed. Uh, so Evagrius the Solitary said this. He said, pray for the gift of tears. Pray for the gift of tears. Now first, notice how he says, pray for it as a gift. We don't come before God and put on a show. That's what the hypocrite does. He's an actor. 
we pray for this gift of tears that God will give to some people and not to others, which means some of us will literally experience the blessedness of mourning by actually weeping and crying in our prayer time. But don't feel bad if you don't, because that is a gift. God grants some of us to have such intimacy with the Lord, and some of us don't have that much uh, grace poured into our prayer time. It's all by grace, right? We don't work this up. Um, pray for the gift of tears. Why? He continues. Pray for the gift of tears so that through sorrowing, you may tame what is savage in your soul. There is a monster and a beast inside of me that I cannot get the best of in a wrestling match. But by sorrowing over my sin, by recognizing my own weakness, it is in that moment when that heart is broken or those tears roll down the cheeks, that is when the beast is tamed. The savage part of my soul is put to rest. Another guy, I didn't write it down because I didn't think I'd say it, but I remember somewhat of what he said. He said, your tears will be, uh, your tears will, will, will cause a sea that drowns the ship of sins in your heart. Just, just flooding the rats away. It is cleansing. It is healing. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. You want comfort, brothers and sisters, he says. Let's mourn. The Beatitudes start low before they exalt. So it's healing. Um, what it means to mourn, then, what we see, to put this in a, a word we're familiar with. Remember, poor in spirit, we, we can simplify by saying humility, but it's important to look at what humility means. Uh, how could we simplify what it means to mourn? I would say the word repent. It's that brokenness, that, that mourning of, I don't like the old way, I want the new way. So I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn. And the way this word is used in the rest of scripture is pretty consistent. It, it, this word mourn is consistently used with um, humility and turning from sin. The mourning is associated with sin. So we know what Jesus is telling us to is he's not just saying you're blessed when you're sad. He's saying you're blessed when you mourn your sinfulness. And that's what cleanses us. That's what frees us from these sins. So James is an example. If you want to keep your finger and go to James over to your right. Hebrews and the book of James, first and second Peter. Uh, James chapter four. It's a well-known section but you've probably never connected it to this beatitude before. James 4, verse 9. Actually, we'll just start in verse 8. No, we'll start in verse 7. No, we'll start in verse 6. <laughs> just start in James chapter 1, verse 1. Just kidding. Uh, James... They were just waiting for a release, weren't they? James chapter 4, verse 6. But God gives more grace... Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So keep that in mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
So there's two things. You need to seek God and you need to resist the devil. Sometimes we forget that there's a two-directional action called on us. We kind of sometimes just submit ourselves to God and we forget to resist the devil. We're told to do both. And resist the devil, he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, how do we do all this? And how do we cleanse our hearts and cleanse our hands? He tells us in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. That word mourn is the same one Jesus uses. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How do we correct what's wrong within us? James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So we start with poor in spirit and we go to mourning. They're both different avenues of humility. We see who we are and now we're doing something with it. There was, um, you guys you might remember the Desert Fathers, the 4th century. This is after uh, Constantine becomes the emperor. Christianity becomes the, the Vogue thing now. So everybody wants to be Christian. And um, so some people who grew up in a church that was persecuted found the ease of Christianity now troubling. So they went out into the wilderness to practice prayer and fasting. That's what they did for their whole lives. And they pushed one another in prayer and fasting. And so this was their way to experience Christianity as it's meant to be. Christianity was always meant to be a struggle, right? So they went out into the wilderness to do that. And one of them was named uh, Dioscorus. And Dioscorus was seen. He was, he was one, of the, one of the mentors of many other uh, guys out there. And Dioscorus was once seen by one of his disciples weeping. He said, why are you weeping? And he said, I'm weeping because of my sins. And the disciple said, hey, Scorus, you're like the holiest person I know. Surely you don't have very many sins to weep over. And he answered him and said, if I were allowed to see my sins, three or four men would not be enough to weep for them. If I were allowed to see my sins, we don't often acknowledge or recognize how sinful we are because we kind of just like set the bar really low and say, we all do that. And God sometimes in his mercy doesn't allow us to see all of it lest we despair. But this is part of the prayer. And remember, Evagri said, pray for the gift of tears. If we could but begin to see even partially the way God sees sin, we would find ourselves mourning and being wretched and weeping. That sounds so negative, doesn't it? But here's what begins to happen. As we find ourselves in that place, this repentance enlarges our hearts. We begin to recognize that I am no different than any other human I've met. In fact, I share a common plight with every human. The holy and the unholy is that we are eternally low compared to our Savior. 
And so I begin to, I begin to actually recognize that I share the sins of all other people. That I am guilty not only for my sin, but I'm actually guilty for the sins of my neighbors. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to literally judge me for Randy's sins. But it does put in perspective that maybe he sins because I don't love him enough. And I'm therefore part to blame for the sins around me. When we begin to mourn our sins, we begin to see sin so much more clearly. And we begin to realize that we have more responsibility than we are willing to acknowledge. There's a prayer that's um, called hypostatic prayer. I don't, you know, sometimes prayer is prayer, right? But people term things, things to kind of like explain, like, this is something that happens in prayer. Um, Hypostatic prayer, it's a Greek, hypostatic is the Greek for like personhood. So personhood prayer doesn't sound as catchy as hypostatic prayer. But um, uh, what it is, is when you pray something like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And your heart starts getting just, the wounds get open. The more and more you pray that through life and you you begin to see who you are, you're mourning your sin and, and you're receiving constantly the balm and mercy of Christ. What ends up happening in time is that you begin to recognize that when you say, have mercy on me, a sinner, you begin to feel every single soul you know in that prayer. Have mercy on me becomes my church. It becomes my family. It becomes the people that I carry in my heart. It becomes the people I run into throughout the day. Because suddenly you're no longer living as a self. You're living as one among the human race. And you're bearing their sins. You're doing what Christ does. You're becoming on their behalf an intercessor. But this doesn't happen until we recognize our own wretchedness and we're willing to mourn our sins. So as a result of this, when we, when we come to this place where we recognize that I literally am nothing and I'm broken open, that is when mercy comes. That is when comfort comes. That is where we meet Christ. Psalm... I forgot what psalm it is. One of you may know. I think it's like 43. Um, The Lord is near to the broken hearted. Where do we find God? Where do we meet with him? Where do we receive his comfort? It's not in all the amazing charity things I do. Or the wonderful counseling I do with people. Or the wonderful prayer life that I have. Or because I go to the right church, or because the worship team played the right song finally and it got my heart. Like, this is not where we meet. God does meet us in these things, but where you will always find God in all of His mercy and all of His embrace is when you're broken. And Jesus has said, There's plenty to be broken about. Mourn over your sins. So this is a really hard, I find personally that this is one of the hardest beatitudes. In fact, I often question if I'm really poor in spirit because of how difficult I find mourning my sin. And this is 
partly how we're meant to look at the Beatitudes is if I'm struggling with this, maybe I don't quite have this. And man, humility, brothers and sisters, join, join the lifelong struggle. Humility is a lifelong direction. It's not, we think, we like to think of things as arrival points. Like, I'm a peacemaker now. I arrived. Or I am a merciful person. Or I'm a prayer warrior. Like we arrive at these places. I'm humble. You don't arrive at humility. Humility is a direction with no destination. The minute you arrive at humility, you have made a wrong turn. This is a direction. And it's something that you're never going to say, check, poor in spirit. Check, I mourned. What's next? Gentle. No. These are things you start to become. Remember, this isn't do this beatitude and get a blessing. This is become this beatitude and you begin to embody the Edenic and heavenly blessings of God. The, the state of being. And so this is something we don't stop being poor in spirit. We don't stop mourning our sin. So it's one of the reasons why I thought it was important that we as a community confess our sins every week. We have a time when we do business with God in our hearts and we remind ourselves, yeah, I'm not here out of merit. I don't deserve God. I receive him because he is good to me. So um, this comfort that he gives us in this moment is um, you will find this sounds like such a dreary road, but when we reach this comfort at the end, it's the real comfort, not the Ben and Jerry comfort. No offense to Ben or Jerry, but it's not that comfort. This is real healing comfort. And so Christians are walking this new life that most humanoids, most worldlings don't walk. And so Christians had to find words to describe this experience. And so it's actually common that Christians were inventing words because they were pushing and straining the Greek language to its maximum to explain this new reality. Like the Greek language couldn't adequately explain what Christ has done. So um, one um, word that was created and invented was harmalipi. Harmalipi. It's, it's, it's a word to describe the comfort one finds when they've gone through mourning their sins. So this isn't, I feel good. This is, I've gone through this, this, this surgery that God has worked on me, and now I've found a deeper, truer joy at the end. Harmalipi is roughly translated joy-making sorrow or sweet sorrow. It's that joy, that comfort that you receive when you're in the midst of saying, I'm wretched and I've sinned and I'm sorry, Lord. That's the comfort that we receive. So you get your initial joy when you come to Christ. You're like, whoo! I've never felt more alive. There's purpose in my life. And that's one level of joy. But then there's this deeper. This first joy is kind of like, it's like, it's almost like, whoa, fantasy. Like, I can't believe life is good. But then there's this deeper joy that it, that just becomes something we live in. And it's more, it's more humming in the background and underneath. And, and that joy, that lasting joy comes when we go through weeping. So, this harmalipi is what we receive when we are, when with the tears, whether of the heart or literally, when they're coming down our face and you feel the touch of Christ wiping those off your cheek. That's harmalipi. There's no better moment, is there, than that God 
is giving me comfort and wiping my tears. So what does it mean to mourn? To mourn is to be healed because to mourn is to turn, is to repent. It's to be so disgusted with our sin that we want nothing else but God. So I would say to mourn is to be healed, to mourn is to repent, and to mourn is to yearn. It's to yearn for God. This is what it results in. You're yearning for him because you realize that you have nothing to, you've seen who you are and you're yearning for none of that anymore. You want to move on. You want something new. So you're yearning for Christ. And this is actually what repentance is. We, I think we sometimes think that repentance is like, I made a decision for Jesus. I repented. But repentance is actually something we have to do all the time because I don't stop sinning and I don't stop yearning for the things that are not of God. So I have to constantly turn to him, turn to him, turn to him. And so to live a to live in the blessedness of mourning is to live in a yearning for Christ continually. So I am saying in this hour of this day, I'm yearning for him. In this conversation, I'm yearning for him. In my free time, I'm yearning for him. I'm finding that when the world becomes a bit distracting, I'm going to choose to yearn for him. Because when I'm in a state of weeping, I will yearn for him because I see the world for what it is. And the more we're inundated with the world, brothers and sisters, the less you're going to see your sin and there's nothing to mourn. We must continually yearn and turn to Christ and we will begin to be confronted with who we are and then we will find no other solution but him. We're yearning. So, uh, two ways that this can look, there's probably tons of ways, but I think two very concrete and specific ways that this mourning looks like is one, it's fasting. Have you ever been so grieved for something that you lose your appetite? That's part of why Christians fast. Sometimes the, the popular way that fasting is talked about is, I want some direction from God. Like you want something, so you give something up. Almost like a works reward kind of a system. Um, truly though, fasting from those, if you talk to those who've done it for some time, they begin to say fasting is just a natural course for me because I realize my wretchedness. I don't find food deserving of me, or at least pleasurable food. So Matthew 9, verse 15, it's the next time this word mourn shows up in the Bible within Matthew's gospel. Um, It's where Jesus is saying, uh, they're like, why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus is like, because the bridegroom's with them. But when the bridegroom's taken away, then they will fast and they will mourn. See the connection that Jesus had. Right there, the next time in Matthew, mourning is connected with fasting. So fasting is one way we can teach ourselves to mourn, and fasting is also just a result of mourning. So it kind of works in a cycle. Um, the second way we can see um, that our heart is in a place of mourning is you find yourself constantly drawing on arrow prayers. You might It's been a while since I've mentioned these, but you might remember the arrow prayers are the prayers of the heart that we just keep on keeping this open communication with God. It's not like I did my morning prayers, amen, and I go live my life until the next time I pray. It's that we keep that amen, not as the conclusion of our prayer, but as the, this was good, let's keep it going. (laughs) That's what amen means. It means, so be it. And so we go and we take, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, through the day. Every time you find yourself wanting something, the heart reacts, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or it's gladden the soul of your servant, for to you I lift up my soul. 
Those are our arrow prayers. This is those prayers that you just carry in your heart. And if you keep those going, you will find that you keep yearning for Christ. You're turning. This is repentance. This is mourning. Your heart is broken and wanting more of him constantly. So this, Jesus says, leads us to comfort. And this, brothers and sisters, is the path to greater joy. Yes, there's joy in avoiding the discomfort. There's joy in avoiding sorrow. But there is deeper joy by being healed. There's deeper joy by being at the lowest place where all the fullness of God has descended to meet us. That's real greater joy. So um, I know that I know that we can get weary. I know you guys can get weary. Like, I don't think coming to church here is an easy experience for most people. And I know that it can just be like, oh, man, it's not the church where I can just hide in the back. Like, it actually demands stuff of me. I mean, like, people say things, and I feel like I have to participate. And, and people have to, like, I have to say hi to people because I can't just blend in. And everyone's so friendly that they have to say hi to me. And I know it can be exhausting. And Pastor Brandon always talks about sin and the the, the centrality of Christ in our lives. And it challenges me. And yeah, it does. It challenges me too. Sometimes I get exhausted with myself. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We don't exist. And tell this to people who get weary. We're not a community that exists to make selves. Okay? You're not here because yourself needed to feel like a better self. I can give you a lot of recommendations if that's what you want. Um, You're here because what we are a community about, our community is about making souls. Okay, there's a lot of pampering the self, a lot of helping the self feel better, a lot of helping the self be distinguished from other selves because there's a lot of insecurity. And yeah, that feels good and that's one method of joy, but the deeper lasting joy is to become the soul God made us. And to participate in oneness with Christ. And to take on this blessed life he's called us to. That's why I push you guys. That's why I talk about everyone who's visited. The first few Bible college students who visited here. I think the first. We were in Daniel. Yeah, it's the first message of Daniel. Daniel and his friends fasted. So he talked about fasting. And one, one of the kids was like. I've been to church like for years. And I've never heard anyone press a congregation to fast before. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, that's, guys, I I will push. And sometimes you'll feel weary, but ask for the grace of Christ to keep going because we're not settling to just be a self with a Jesus label, a little Jesus badge. Hi, I'm a Christian. Jesus is in my life. We're here to say we are Christians, which means we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are Christ. Like, I don't just add him as a label to me. I am being grown into his new creation. Um, so blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Yeah. Jesus wants to push us out of our comfort. He wants us, if you remember last week to, he wants us to walk on that edge of despair, but not falling in, but so close and, and always holding us back to have a cup of tea when needed. He wants us to grow. I want us to grow. I want to grow. And you are just stuck with me because that's the journey I'm on. So, um, (laughs) Let's pray. 
Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now, ever, always, unto ages of ages. May my life, Lord, do that. May I bring glory to you.